Good morning, folks. How are you? I'll be glad when vacation is over. Vacation summer, I guess, is over. Hey, I'm glad that you are here, though. I'm so thankful that you're here. We're th- Throughout the summer, we're in a series through Esther, and we're coming near the end of that series. We are today in Esther chapter 8. If you want to open God's Word to that Old Testament book, go to Psalms, turn left, you'll hit Job and go left again, and you'll come to Esther. Esther chapter 8. Uh, now, Lord willing, next Sunday we will complete the series. We'll be looking at chapters 9 and 10, Lord willing, next Sunday. So, if this is perhaps your first Sunday with us, let me give you a snapshot real quickly of this very important Old Testament book. The book begins by showing us a, a young Jewish woman named Esther who becomes unexpectedly the queen of Persia. After becoming queen, a man named Haman decides that he would like to kill, annihilate, destroy, wipe out all the Jews of the Persian Empire. He doesn't know that the queen is a Jew, but his hatred drives him to convince the king to annihilate, destroy, wipe out all the Jews of the Persian Empire from India all the way to Ethiopia. 127 different provinces in that time. He was the Hitler of his day. Now, when Queen Esther was a little girl, long before she became queen, she was an orphan. And she was raised by her cousin, a Jewish man named Mordecai. Somewhere along the way, Mordecai comes in contact with Haman. Haman hates the Jews, which Mordecai is. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. He refuses to honor Haman in any form or fashion. And so when Mordecai hears that Haman has developed a plan to wipe out the Jews, he goes to the queen, he goes to the palace, and he's asking queen... Esther for help. Haman is so filled with rage against Mordecai and against all the Jews that not only does he want to kill the Jews eventually, uh, 11 months down the road, uh, which is when the king kind of set it all up, but Haman also decides he wants to go ahead and kill Mordecai now. And so we looked last week, I believe it was, where Haman had a seven and a half story gallows built on which he planned to hang Mordecai as a statement to all the Jews. Now, during that time, while the gallows was being built, Esther decides to hold a banquet and to tell King Xerxes that she's a Jew and that Haman is planning to kill all the Jews. And so she decides to bring those two characters together at one little banquet, private banquet, so that she can plead for her life plead for the life of her people, and to expose what Haman is about to do. Once King Xerxes hears what is about to happen, he decides that Haman is the one who deserves to die. And so Haman is hanged on the gallows that was built for Mordecai. So we open our Bibles to Esther chapter 7. This is where we were last week. I want you just to see how the chapter ends. Esther chapter 7 verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Now, here's why all of that matters. Why does this story about this guy who hated the Jews and, and wanted to kill the Jews and, and he gets hanged, why does that matter to you and to me? Here's why it matters. God's plan of salvation was hanging in the balance. You see, God had planned and had intended from the beginning of the world that, that the Savior would come through the Jewish line. 
And if Haman was successful in wiping out and obliterating all the Jews, and he wanted to do it in a single day, if he was, if he was successful in wiping out the Jews, then Jesus would never have been born, and you would never have a chance to be born again. The Savior of the world was in the balance. So when you read the book of Esther, it's not just the life of Esther or Mordecai or the Jews that's at stake. It is your eternal life that is at stake as well. So when we read chapter 7, verse 10, the enemy of the Jews is hanged. And we think, okay, that's good. Read it again. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Problem solved, right? Wrong. Haman was dead but his murderous plan was still very much alive. Let me remind you what the murderous plan was. Go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Remember verse 13, we'll come back to it in a few moments, but remember what it states there. Now here's the problem. The orders to kill the Jews on a single day was an order that was irrevocable. It was called the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once an edict was passed, it couldn't be rescinded. Once the king made a law like this, it couldn't be taken back. It couldn't be revoked. He couldn't say, well, I changed my mind. Uh, It couldn't be rescinded. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. There's several examples of this in the Bible, especially in the book of Daniel. For example, in Daniel chapter 6, three times in Daniel chapter 6, where it talks about the law of the Medes and the Persians that couldn't be revoked. Let me just give you one example. Daniel chapter 6 verse 15 says, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So here's the deal. Haman was the one who wrote this law, but he wrote it under the name of King Xerxes. And he sealed it with the ring of the king. And so it is now the law of the land. It is the law made essentially by King Xerxes. And it cannot be revoked. It cannot be removed. It cannot be changed. So though Haman has died, though he is the author of this law, though he has died, the law is still very much alive. And within nine months, the Persians would move in and annihilate the entire Jewish race. Unless something happens. So with that in mind, we read chapter 8, Esther chapter 8. This is where we pick up today. That same day, that is the day that Haman was, was hanged, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Now, the tone suggests that that, uh, something was happening here kind of behind the scenes a little bit. Look at the next part of verse 1. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, probably for the first time. He comes into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the tone would seem to suggest that Esther did far more than just identify him as her cousin. But Esther probably likely told Xerxes that this was essentially her adopted father and how much he meant to her. 
till the death of Haman sets about a sequence of reversals throughout this chapter. Here's what I want everybody look up here. I want to tell you something. Throughout the chapter, throughout chapter 8, you will see one reversal after another after another that ultimately leads to the ultimate reversal. Now, in the first service, after the first service, a guest said to me, man, I almost broke loose when you started talking about those reversals. I put my arm around and I said, brother, you come back next week, you break loose. All right? So if you feel like you're about to break loose when we dig into this and get to the other end, don't be holding back today, okay? I preach better when you break loose, all right? Let me just say it that way. All right? So here we go. Let's dig in. Now, verses, uh, verse 1 is really, really the first reversal. Here's the first reversal. It involves Mordecai. It says, And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. Verse 2, The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him, Mordecai, over Haman's estate. In a, in a great reversal, the first reversal of the chapter, Mordecai is given all the power, all the authority, all the possessions of Haman. So Mordecai is now the prime minister of Persia. Now we go to verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Esther realizes that the Jews are still living under a death sentence. She realizes that though Haman is dead, the edict to kill the Jews is still very much alive. And unless the king intervenes, all the Jews will die on the 13th day of Adar. So she goes to the king and she's pleading with the, with the king. Notice the emotions involved in this. Verse 3, she pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping and begged him. Notice those phrases. She's very emotional. Now, the last time she was before the king, she was very composed. Nervous, perhaps, but very composed. Now, she comes before the king very emotional. She falls literally at his feet. She's pleading and begging and crying for him to do something, for him to intervene. And then look at verse 5. Esther in verse 5 and 6 is asking Xerxes to do something that Persian kings never did. If it pleases the king, she said. And if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see destruction of my family? Esther was asking Xerxes to do something that the king of Persia had never done. Esther was asking him to somehow undo what he had done. Esther was very much aware of the law of the Medes and the Persians, but she was simply saying, isn't there some way you can do something to change this situation? Now, guys, everybody, all the men, especially if you're married, you need to look at what, how she came about this. Verse 5, I want you to look for the word me. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the other one. Two times we see this word, me. You know what she was saying? Here's the translation, shortest translation. She was saying, honey, 
do it for me. Would you do it for me? I, I know Persians don't usually do this. I know it's kind of, the, I know all about the law of the Persians, but honey, just do it for me. Every married man here knows what that's like, right? Men, you, you know, I mean, I, listen, when Lisa, I'm going to walk over here so I'm not looking at her. When, when, <laughs> when Lisa tilts her head and she bats those pretty brown eyes and she says, Keith, just would you do it for me? How do you say no to that, right? And guys, you've had that experience. Your, your wife says, honey, I know you don't want to go to this wedding. I know you wanted to go play golf, but do it for me. Just do it for me. Here's what I want you to know, man. Women have been doing this for centuries. <laughs> All the way back to Esther, they, that's what she was, she said, honey, just do it for me. Now, this is an interesting thing. Since the decree of death is irrevocable, since the decree of death is irrevocable, the only option is for the king to write another order that would counteract the first one. He can't just stop what he's done previously. The only option is to write a new order, a new edict, that would counteract what he's done. So we read in verse 7, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write, you might want to underline this, another decree. In the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, just like the previous one was sealed with the king's signet ring. And then he reminds them, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Now, I think a case could be made that King Xerxes here was perturbed. I think a case could be made that he was a little bit frustrated, he was a little bit angry, he was a little bit disturbed with his wife. You see, he says in verse 7, Listen, I've already killed the man and I gave you his estate. So what, you want me to do something else? I mean, the reason I say that, you could leave out most of verse 7 and it would still make sense. Read it with me. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Chapter 8, King Xerxes replied. Skip everything else, skip down to verse 8. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther, Now write another decree in the king's name, blah, blah, on, on and on. So all of that would have made sense, right? Now, he, he could have read this way. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther, Write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. But, but instead of saying, well, go ahead and write something, that's not what he did. He says, listen. I think he's frustrated. I th- he says, listen. I've killed the man. I've hung him. And I gave you his estate. It's almost like, what more do you want? I I, I can't ever give you enough. What more do you want? Rather than responding with sympathy, Xerxes reminds them of what he's already done. And then, here's the clincher. Ladies, now this is your turn. Here's the clincher in verse 8. In verse 8, he basically, I think, said with an attitude. Verse 8. He says, I think with an attitude, he says, now, write another decree, and in some translations it says, you write the decree, 
in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you. You know what, ladies? You know what he was saying here? Just go ahead and do whatever you want. You're going to do it anyway. Just go ahead and do whatever you want. said it probably with that kind of an attitude. You just, just, he's distancing himself a little bit from this. He's not going to write the decree. He says, all right, I've killed the man. I've given you his estate. But, but if she's crying, she's weeping, just go ahead and do it. Just write whatever you want to write. Here's my ring. Just write whatever you want to write. Put my ring on it. Put my name on it. Send it on. Now, verse 9. At once... I like that phrase, at once, this was too important to put off. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Savan, and they wrote out all Mordecai's orders, not Haman's orders, this time Mordecai's writing the orders. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors, the same people Haman had written to, and nobles of the 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush or to Ethiopia. And these orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also through the Jews in their own script and language. And notice what happens here, verse 10. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, just like Haman did, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. You say, okay, why were they in such a hurry? He says they did it at once. Why were they in such a hurry? I think for two reasons. I mean, they still had nine months before that one day of slaughter would kick in. So why were they in such a hurry? I think for two reasons. Number one, it takes a long time to cover, to get word to 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. They didn't have email. They didn't have planes, trains, or automobiles. So they got the fastest horses they could find because they've got a ride from Ethiopia all the way to India and tell everybody about this verdict. So that's one thing. They had to have time to get the word out. But secondly, watch this. This is important. I think the second reason was this. They had to give the Jews time to prepare. Well, prepare for what? Prepare for war. Prepare for war. They had to give the Jews time to prepare for war. Look at verse 11. The king's edict, this new edict given by the king, granted the Jews in every city the right, two rights. Number one, to assemble. And number two, to do what? Underline that. Protect themselves. That is so important. Protect themselves. Now, listen to this. To destroy, kill, this is the new, the new edict. See if it sounds familiar. To destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force or any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Does that sound familiar? Go back to chapter 3. I told you to go back to it. Verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women, little children, on a single day, Uh, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The edicts are almost word for word the same. So the one that Mordecai sent out was almost word for word for the one that Haman sent out. 
Now, there's something, if you're reading your text, that might have disturbed you if you read verse 11, if you were tuned in. There's a disturbing uncertainty about how to translate a portion of verse 11. The NIV does it this way. Look at it in the middle of the verse. To destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. So in the NIV, it translates them and their women and children. It links the women and children to the Jews. But in other translations, that phrase is, that Hebrew phrase there is so uncertain, some translations translate it just the opposite. That the Jews had permission to destroy any army that might attack them and to also destroy that army's women and children. Now that is an exact mirror of what Haman had said to destroy all men and women and their children and to plunder their goods. That is a mirror of what Haman had said. You say, well, which one is it? I think you could build a strong case for either translation. But here's what I want you to know. Either way is ugly and horrific, isn't it? As war always is. Now, we'll talk more about that next week in chapter 9 because that's where you really get into this whole concept of a holy war. And we'll dig into that in chapter 9. But let me just quickly say three things about that whole idea here of the Jews being permission to go to war, the Jews giving, being given permission to, to go slaughter people, annihilate, destroy people. Let me make three observations. Number one, the edict intentionally mirrors Haman's decree. As I showed you, it's almost word for word. I think it, that was intentional. It was the Jews' way of saying, what you plan to do to us, we will also do to you. Whatever you do to us, we will do to you. Number two, the Jews were, were not given permission to murder the Persians. Second observation, the Jews were not given permission to murder the Persians. They were given permission to defend themselves. There's a difference. Haman was intent on genocide, annihilation. Mordecai's edict was not about genocide. Mordecai's edict was about self-defense. Verse 11, it it is very clear about that in verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. Number three, the third observation is this. Jewish forces could defend themselves only on the day that Haman's decree was in effect. In other words, they could not go out and start killing Persians ahead of time. They could not do like a preemptive strike nor could they continue to kill the Persians beyond that day of slaughter that Haman had set. Haman had set one day of slaughter, and this this order from Mordecai allowed for the Jews to defend themselves on that one day, not before, not after. Now, there's a little caveat there. We'll get into that next week. So here's what I want you to understand. This decree in every way counteracts what Haman has done. Xerxes did not overturn Haman's order, but he did at least even the playing field. Or we could say it this way, he did at least even the battlefield. Now, let's keep reading. It's about to get good. So if, you, if you've checked out, this would be a good time to check back in. All right, It's about to get good. Verse 12. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. It's confined to one day. 
a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Remember that phrase and come back next week. There is something incredible I want to tell you about that. Verse 14, the couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Now, I told you that chapter 9 is really a chapter about reversals. We're about to read some of the great reversals that God brought about for his people. The first one involves Mordecai. Verse 15, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white and and a large crown of gold and the purple robe of fine linen. Now, I've also mentioned that Mordecai, of course, took Haman's position. That was one reversal. Here's another one. Do you remember the last time we saw Mordecai where it talks about his clothes in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? He was wearing clothes of mourning. He was wearing sackcloth and ashes. And now he's wearing robes of royalty. It is an amazing reversal that this man who was doomed to die, this man who was destined to die, he had no hope of changing that, now suddenly takes off the, the mourning clothes of, of uh, uh, sackcloth and ashes, and now he's wearing robes of royalty. Only God could do something like that. That's one reversal. But let's dig a little further. There's another reversal that deals with the Jews living in the city of Susa. Look in chapter 8, verse 15, the second half. And the city of Susa held a, a what, church? A joyous celebration. In fact, in every province, verse, seven, uh, uh, verse 16, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Well, that sure didn't sound like the Jews of, Sidon, or the Jews of Susa we read about in chapter 3 and 4, did it? Remember what they were doing in chapter 3 and 4? Go back. Chapter 3, verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, that is the edict of Haman to destroy all the Jews. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was what? Bewildered. Go on down to chapter 4, verse 3. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was, watch this, there was great mourning. Watch these four things. There was great mourning among the, among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, they had no hope. There was mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. They had no hope of changing their situation. They were living under a death sentence. And there was no way to change their situation. They were mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. But in chapter 8, verse 16, now this same group of people are filled with happiness and joy and gladness and honor. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here today to tell you that God reversed the evil that Haman had planned for the Jews. And the same God can reverse the evil Satan has planned for you. You see, you need to understand, He alone is the author of reversals. 
that no matter how hard, how negative, how bad your life has been, there is the author of reversals who can take that which Satan meant for harm and he can turn it around so that there is joy and happiness in your life again. See, this is not just the story of Esther and Mordecai. This is your story. This is my story. Let me explain it to you this way. Now don't hold back on me, alright? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God, who is king of the universe, pronounced an irrevocable decree of death on us all. Because of their sin, that irrevocable decree of death was not only against Adam and Eve, it was against all of their descendants. In fact, the Bible describes it this way in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we all have the same problem Adam and Eve had. We all fall short of God's glory. And because we're all sinners, we all live under the death sentence of judgment. We all have God's irrevocable decree of death hanging over us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. God made that law, and God cannot and will not rescind that law. God can't say, well, I changed my mind. Come on in, Adam and Eve, you're okay. He can't look at your life and say, well, I've changed my mind. You're a pretty good person. Come on in, you're okay. God declared, as king of the universe, the wages of sin is death. And because He's God, what He says is law, and what He says is true, and what He says is eternal. So when He says... The wages of sin is death. He did not mean for a little while, but it is for all time. It is an irrevocable law of God. Hebrews 9.27 says, The man is destined to die once, and after that, to face the judgment. We are all destined to die because of our sin, and we are all destined to face the judgment before God. The king of the universe has declared it. It is irrevocable. God could and justly would annihilate, to use the words of Esther, annihilate and destroy all of us. Because we are all sinners, we have all failed God, and we all have that sentence of death awaiting us. But, the same king who issued the order of death also has issued another edict of life. That same king, the same king who declared that you deserve to die, that same king has declared, but you can live again. That same king, the king of kings, you see, issued another decree. He issued another order. He could not simply rescind the death sentence that he pronounced in the Garden of Eden. So instead, he put that death sentence on his son. So that he could then offer us life that is eternal. You see, just like the king Xerxes in the Old Testament book of Esther, just like he wrote out a, an edict of death, He, through Mordecai, then wrote out an edict of life. And God does that for us. It's explained for us in Romans chapter 5. 
I want you to take your Bibles quickly. We're going to have to read this real quick. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God, but here's the way. It's underlying this. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... That is powerless to change our situation, hopeless to change our situation, living under the sentence of death at just the right time when we were still powerless, just like the people in Esther's day, still powerless. Christ died for the good people of the world. No. Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. Because we all fall short of the glory of God. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But, verse 8, but God, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, watch this, Christ died for us. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That the king of the universe has issued, you are living under decree of death. You deserve death. The wages of sin is death. It's an irreversible, irrevocable law. But that same king who issued that irrevocable law said this, Christ died for us. Let those words sink in. Christ died for us. Don't you understand that you do have hope and it's not because of your goodness? Oh my goodness, you could never change this irrevocable law of death. It's not because of your goodness. Here's the reason we have hope. Here's the reason we have good news. Christ died for us. In our place. Taking our judgment, our pain. Real quick, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. You've got to run there. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, verse 1, you were, what's that next word? You were what? Dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Him, uh, Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us here in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. You know what he's saying? There was a king who issued this edict of death, but that same king issued an edict of life. And it's not based on how good you are. It's based on this fact. Christ died for us. He experienced the death and the judgment you and I deserved. And that's why Jesus said these words in in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said these words, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He has crossed over 
from death to life. Can I say it again? He has crossed over from death to life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the ultimate reversal. And only God, only God can bring it about. It was a day when I was 11 years old. And I knelt at an altar about right here at that little bitty white church. And I confess that I put my faith that day that Christ died for me. And on that day as an 11-year-old kid, I crossed over from death to life. And the edict that the king of the universe had declared about me that I deserved death and punishment and hell, that edict was one I turned away from and I accepted the other edict. The one that said, you can have life and it can be abundant and it can be eternal and it is all free. How about you? Have you done that? Have you crossed over from death to life? Let's pray about that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus if someone here today has still yet to receive you as Savior, if they are still under the false assumption that they can be good enough or they can somehow obtain salvation on their own, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll convict them that the edict of life only comes by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ that He died for us. And I pray somebody today, they don't yet know you as Savior, would declare you as their Lord, as their Master, as their Savior. And Lord, for those of us who do know you as Savior, we are so grateful. Because we deserve none of it. But by your grace, you have given us what we have. And may we be a people who takes that message to the nations of the world who are living under the edict of death. May we tell them about the one who is life. And I pray that in Christ's name.